Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for June 24th, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Norman Eisen, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and an internationally recognized expert on law, ethics, and anti-corruption. From January 2009 to January 2011, Norman Eisen worked in the White House as Special Counsel and Special Assistant to the President for Ethics and Government Reform. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. In 2003, he co-founded Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, CREW, a government watchdog organization. His most recent book, Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy, is published by the Brookings Institution Press. We spoke with him on June 21st, 2022. Ambassador Eisen, thank you for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thank you for having me, Joy. A pleasure to be with you. Merriam-Webster defines the word trumpery as one, worthless nonsense, trivial or useless articles, or two, archaic, tawdry finery. Their first citation is from the 15th century with the meaning deceit or fraud, deriving from the French tromper, meaning to deceive. How do you mean the word in your book, Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy? When I set out to write a catalog of the four years of Donald Trump's activity as president, I didn't realize that in the chaos of misconduct, wrongdoing, and outright illegality, I would find a pattern. And there's a, there was a method to that madness of Trump's governance philosophy. And that method, that corrupt method of governing, is what I and my very distinguished co-authors mean by trumpery in our new book, Overcoming Trumpery. And we define trumpery as having seven deadly sins. And then we substantiate each of these with dozens and dozens, hundreds of examples. And we talk about what to do about it, because trumpery is not just about Trump. It's running wild in the country now. So the definition of trumpery, the seven deadly sins of trumpery, disdain for ethics, attacking the rule of law, constant lying, shamelessness, pursuing your selfish interests, not the public interest, driving divisions and hate, and finally attacking democracy itself. That is how we define Trumpery. And as I say, we call it Trumpery, not Trumpism. It's not just about Trump joy. It's much broader. And you have over a 100 individuals who are running from coast to coast now on this program, this platform of trumpery. For example, election deniers, they say they agree with Trump's big lie and they support the other aspects of trumpery. So many events, 
converging all at once as we are conducting this interview on the first day of summer of 2022. One of them is the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-ins. And your book notes numerous post-Watergate reforms. And I wonder if you would share with our listeners some of the reforms that you consider most important for us to remember in this time. The most important thing about the Watergate reforms, which created more independence at the Department of Justice, more transparency for what the White House and the executive branch does, tough ethics rules, and on and on. The most important thing to remember is that the country did something in response to the crisis of Watergate, and that included a strong legislative package. Now, the crisis of Trumpery was very different. Unfortunately, a similar set of post-Trump reforms were considered by Congress. That was the For the People Act in the Senate. It became the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And this had a similar set because democracy was attacked. It had democracy defenses. Unfortunately, it failed. So we need to look at the January 6th committee needs to make other solutions. I think they need to offer reforms to the rules around the January 6th meeting of Congress to recognize presidential electors to make clear that the things that Trump tried are against the law. They need to protect also against the violence. So I'd like to see something similar to Watergate there. But we can't just, because Congress is so divided, it's unfortunately, it's not going to be like post-Watergate. Anything we get out of Congress is going to be small. That's why we need to look for that impetus in other places. How are we going to respond to this crisis of trumpery that is burning so strong still from coast to coast, even though Trump is out of the White House. And we have some ideas. Even if we can't get legislation, national legislation today, it was tried joy and it fell ever so slightly short in the Senate. We would have had to overcome the filibuster. And we were only two senators away from changing those awful filibuster rules. But even if it failed in the Senate, there are other things that can be done. And we outline them all in our book. You address the filibuster late in your book, but I would like you to address it early in our interview, and especially since you brought it up. You have some uh, concrete suggestions as to how to deal with the filibuster. Would you share some of those with our listeners, please? I think that there's a menu of options to reform the filibuster. I think the most important of those, my own personal view, I, I call it democracy reconciliation. Now, I have to back up and explain what that is. People think that the filibuster is limited to a, a kind of a holy writ. But no, it has been changed over a hundred times. And the filibuster, of course, is the package of rules that require us to get 60 votes to move legislation in the Senate. So what's known as cloture. 
if you have senators who are filibustering a bill, basically, it's very complicated, Joy, but basically, you need to get 60 votes to shut that down. 60 out of the 100 senators need to agree to shut that down. So in today's Senate, which is split 50-50, that means you're going to need to get 50 of one party and 10 of the other party. And we've seen this in the negotiation over the new gun limitations in response to the horrible crisis in Uvalde. As modest as these gun restrictions would be, you've got 10 Republicans who have signed on to a framework with 50 Democrats. So you get your 60 to achieve cloture to stop filibustering. Okay. But there's been over a hundred exceptions and modifications. One of those is something that's called reconciliation. For pure budgetary and fiscal matters, they're not subject to the filibuster. So you can move a budget bill through both houses, get the Senate to pass it on an up or down vote, getting 51 votes. The vice president is the chair of the Senate, the president of the Senate. So she can vote with the 50 Democrats. You got your 51 votes for a budget bill. Why don't we have that same exception for issues relating to democracy? We would have been able to pass, just like after Watergate, this big package, we would have been able to pass that if we had what I call democracy reconciliation. Now, there are a lot of other modifications, letting that 60 number shrink down over time, for example. So after a week of nonstop debate, it becomes 55. After another week, it becomes 50 plus one. There are other ideas, democracy reconciliation. That's the one I favor. There are numerous ideas in the chapter that you wrote with Jeffrey Mandel and Mel Barnes about the case for filibuster reform. And one of them is requiring that the senators actually be present and requiring 41 votes. So in other words, they couldn't just not show up and then be part of preventing business from happening. I thought that was uh, very logical. And in the past, uh, these were required. It's only because of changes made in the 70s that we're in our current state. And another one is to allow debate, not a vote necessarily, but it, to at least allow debate. And that's under the, the current circumstances not possible either. Well, the good thing about all these filibuster remedies, and this is part of the reason, and you accurately describe them, Joy, and there's more in the chapter. I encourage everybody to get their copy of Overcoming Trumpery. Here's the good news. We didn't succeed in getting them in this Congress. It's dead for the moment. But I think that the expectations have been transformed. It only fell two votes short. And the history of the Senate shows that when you do that, you set a new expectation for the future. So I believe, for example, if there are a sufficient number of Democratic votes, maybe as few as 52 Democratic votes, many people like John Fetterman, who's running for the Senate out of Pennsylvania, have said They endorse filibuster reform. So as soon as 2023, if there are enough Democratic votes, you may see 
that the filibuster is reformed in one or more of the ways we talk about in that chapter of overcoming trumpery and that we get a new start in the Senate and maybe we'll get some of these democracy bills we need post-Trump, just like the post-Watergate reforms that we write about in the book. One of the things that really Trump, I don't want to use the term revolutionized, but for lack of a better word, he just threw norms, strew them about right and left, things that since the founding of our republic were just taken for granted. He just ignores. So you have been very involved in ethics in your career. In fact, under the Obama administration, you actually wrote his rules of ethics. So would you speak a little bit about ethics? Because as you mentioned, there's an aspect of shamelessness. And we have sort of relied on a sense of shame to limit what people do. And we seem to have lost that. So speak a bit about ethics. Our laws are backed by civil and criminal penalties. Our norms, the expectations of good behavior that we always assume didn't have to be made into laws, Joy, those are backed by the penalty of shame and embarrassment and the assumption that no one would want to be so brazen as to do something like not release their tax returns. Of course, that all changed with Donald Trump. And so you had, for example, the most outrageous example, and we write about it in the book, are his decision to take cash and other benefits from foreign governments. It's prohibited in the Constitution. Those goodies are called emoluments. It's just a 18th century word for cash benefits and, and other good stuff from foreign governments. It's the only ethics rule that's so important. They wrote it into the Constitution, but nobody ever imagined in modern times that you would have a president who would be so brazen, so shameless as as to take this. Donald Trump announced at his first post-election press conference that he would. And so that's an example of an ethics. And he did. He raked in millions, conflicted terribly from uh, some of uh, our, our most problematic foreign government entities that we deal with. And of course, ground zero for this was the Trump Hotel here in Washington, D.C., which he's since sold, I guess, without the emoluments. It's not a profitable venture for him. So that's an example of a norm that uh, the tax failure to release your tax returns or another. We need to now write those into law, and we explain that in the book. But we also need other protections, Joy, because clearly some of these laws are not going to pass and our democracy is on fire. I often like to say we need to see our democracy defended in four places. The cable box, the tally box, those are the little boxes on uh, legislative uh, vote sheets, tally sheets, the ballot box, 
and the jury box. The book focuses a lot on legislative solutions, but what we're seeing now from the January 6th committee is getting the truth out. That's the cable box. And we are also going to need to see the ballot box, elections, and the jury box, criminal prosecutions, as part of the post-Trump response, the response to Trumpery that is very similar to the post-Watergate response, where all of those four boxes were also checked. That brings up for me, Norman Eisen, the existential issues we're facing as a democracy. You mentioned truth, but a substantial portion of the population of the United States derives what they consider truth from statements by former President Trump, who has demonstrably lied well over 10,000 times. Over 30,000, Joy. Over 30,000. Okay, whatever the number is, it's a whole lot of lying and demonstrably false statements. However, the loyalty people ascribe to him and the trust they place in him regardless versus demonstrable things such as what the January 6th Congressional Committee is providing. Either they don't believe it or they refuse to even inform themselves of it. I'm not sure, given any legislation, under those conditions, how can democracy stand? Well, it will depend on those four boxes, whether or not it stands. I think it can stand depending on how we respond to Trump's lies and the other conditions of Trumpery. The cable box, the January 6th hearings are getting the truth out about Trumpery. And we've heard about all seven of the deadly sins in these hearings, Joy, culminating in the worst, the attack on democracy itself. The tally box. I think you're going to see legislative recommendations and we might even get fixes, for example, to deal with the attempted manipulation of the January 6th meeting of Congress. That's called Electoral Count Act Reform Plus Dealing with Violence. We're going to get, I think, another great national referendum at the ballot box, Joy, like that of 2020. 2022 is going to offer a national choice, democracy or trumpery, and the jury box. I think we're going to see prosecutions triggered by these January 6th hearings. So I do think we can survive if all of those boxes are checked by American government and society. Okay, so since we're talking about congressional oversight here with the January 6th congressional hearings, you address this in your book in uh, chapter Restoring Congressional Oversight Authority over the Executive Branch, and specifically talking about the issue of subpoenas, which came up regularly in the efforts of the committee to get to the truth of what happened. I had not realized that the House of Representatives' power to subpoena is apparently less than the Senate's power. Do do I understand that correctly? Well, there's a debate about that in the law. I do not take the view that it is less than the Senate's power. I do think we need to modernize the House's powers. It's the, the Senate statute 
is a little more express about the powers, but the House's powers have always been understood to be the same as the Senate's. And I think that's the legally correct position. I see. And in that chapter, you bring up the question of the power to hold in contempt. That's been of issue lately. And also reigning in the emergency powers of the presidency. And that's something that I don't think it's very much light of day. Could you expand on that, please? Yes. The president has over 150 special emergency powers. They've evolved over the decades, and Congress has put in a variety of these carve-outs to deal with very loosely defined different forms of emergencies. That means the president, if he claims one of these emergencies exists, can dispose with many of the usual checks and balances. We can't have that anymore. We need to define what are the emergencies when we want to give, for example, when we want to give the president freer power to spend money. There's a fight going on now about whether the usual congressional process, there was a litigation fight going on during the Trump administration about whether the usual congressional process, which put some strings attached to the president's power to spend money at the border was superseded to allow him to spend money on his border wall because of a supposed border emergency. So those kinds of things, the Constitution doesn't give anybody unlimited power. We need to recalibrate checks and balances in the United States to allow Congress to say, no, Mr. President, you can't use this money Right now, there's all these ill-defined emergencies. We need to roll those way back. I have since learned from your book what a good idea that would be since the norm of conservative use of emergency powers seems not to apply anymore. And also in that chapter is addressed pardon reform. It brings up the question of Does the president have the power to self-pardon? And former President Trump has recently made the statement, should he be reelected in 2024, he will consider pardons for anyone implicated in the January 6th or the election fraud brouhaha. So what are you thinking in terms of pardon reform? Is that even possible given the Constitution? Well, I I do think that, that some limitations are possible given the Constitution. For example, we could have more transparency surrounding pardons. We could make even more clear so the law requires faster disclosure of all the documentation surrounding a pardon. We could make more clear that you can't take bribes to give a pardon and that a pardon that is obtained through a bribe or through another form of quid pro quo, this for that, is invalid. And then we would have to test whether the Constitution allows invalidity, but at least we could make clear that you can be prosecuted. I think you can be but it hasn't been made expressly clear. There is a debate going on now about whether the president can issue secret pardons. We could say that that is not allowed. So those kinds of 
restrictions on pardons could certainly be legislated. And again, talking about the norms, there was a norm of avoiding pardons that looked like they constituted obstruction of justice, trading a pardon for silence. But that didn't stop the president from issuing pardons that at least raised that question as to his cronies like Roger Stone or Paul Manafort. So all of that could be legislated within, I think, within the parameters of the Constitution's granting of broad pardon powers to the president. Speaking of the Roger Stones, etc., the chapter on restoring the rule of law through Department of Justice reform, I think, was very, very important. Would you please talk about the ways in which Attorney General William Barr created extreme politicization at the DOJ? Well, you know, we have a very strong chapter on this written by the wonderful Richard Painter, who was the Bush ethics czar, my equivalent in the Bush administration, and Professor Claire Finkelstein of the University of Pennsylvania both experts on this, but Bill Barr smashed the normal restraints on an attorney general. Again, they were norms. Let me give you an example, Joy. Before the Mueller report was issued, came out and said there were no, that he had reviewed the Mueller report. And in effect, he had determined based upon the Mueller report that there were no no crimes by the president. Well, that's not what the Mueller report said at all. And Mueller was sufficiently outraged that he actually wrote the AG a letter saying he had created confusion. Two federal judges have now said, don't take my word for it, or Richard or Claire's, two federal judges in the District of Columbia have now said Barr's remarks were in effect dishonest and misleading. But he was doing it clearly to cover up for President Trump. So clearly to have an attorney general showing that lack of independence, look how careful Merrick Garland is when when President Biden made some comments about prosecutions, Merrick Garland repudiated him. So that's an ex- that's an example, but it happened over and over and over again that Bill Barr, instead of being the independent watchdog of the law and the rule of law that we expect from a United States attorney general, was Trump's lapdog. And we shouldn't be deceived by the fact that Barr finally had too much and left when Trump pushed him to join the big lie that Trump won the election and to help Trump attack the election. That can't whitewash all that came before. Just a reminder to our listeners, this wasn't the first time that William Barr was the Attorney General of the United States, nor tried to obfuscate and in my opinion, impede justice from being served in the George H.W. Bush administration towards the end of that administration, as the Iran-Contra litigation was happening, the word I understand is that the president was kind of freaking out that testimony was going to negatively reflect on his actions as vice president under Ronald Reagan. And Attorney General Barr told him, oh, don't worry about it. Just pardon these guys and it'll go away. 
And that's what he did. He pardoned the people and that mooted the whole thing. Well, anyway, back to the present. The Office of Legal Counsel has been problematic way before the Trump administration, particularly, for example, under the Bush administration with the torture memo and that sort of thing. What are the reforms that your authors have considered to rectify some of the problems with the Office of Legal Counsel, which is under the Department of Justice? Well, the Office of Legal Counsel is one of the least known but most important arms of the Department of Justice. And they are, in effect, the Department of Justice's Department of Justice. They do the legal analysis, not just for DOJ, but often for the presidency, the White House, and the whole executive branch. What does the law actually require? And if you want to know why that's so important, Joy, look no further than the contempt prosecutions coming out of the January 6th hearings. Remember, the January 6th committee referred four people for prosecution, Steve Bannon, Peter Navarro, Mark Meadows, and Dan Scavino. Of those four, only two were prosecuted by DOJ, even though I thought there was a very meritorious case as to Scavino and Meadows, they were not prosecuted for contempt of Congress for failing to show up before the January 6th committee. Committee's very upset about it. Why? That brings us very likely to the Office of Legal Counsel, because there are a set of memos very protective of the presidency that the OLC, as it's called, has promulgated over the years. So I think we need to reform the OLC. Of course, we need to do away with some of these outrageous memos. Do you know some of the OLC, the law at the OLC, is is secret? It never gets revealed publicly. You can't have that in a democracy. There needs Now, maybe it can't be revealed the same day because of confidentiality reasons, but there needs to be a gradual plan to release the OLC memos. And I think we need to learn the lessons. They've been too protective of executive power. As we talked about, so you see my criticisms are not limited to Trump and Trumpery. Checks and balances are what we need to have a healthy American country. And I think OLC has neglected that in some of their legal advice. They are the source, and we write about this a lot in the book, the infamous torture memos saying the Bush administration could conduct torture. No, that's not America. So, you know, we need to have much more accountability and transparency at OLC. And isn't the Office of Legal Counsel the source for the dictum that a sitting president cannot be indicted? It's not even a dictum. It's just a wrong opinion. But it limited Bob Mueller very severely. He had to abide by it because he was in within DOJ and he's an organization man. If I were Bob Mueller, I would have said that's wrong. It's not the law. It's the majority of experts, including colleagues like my very good friend, uh, Professor Lawrence Tribe, America's leading constitutional authority at Harvard Law School. The majority of experts say there's no such thing. That that's an example of what you and I have been talking about, how this OLC 
whoever's in the White House, they move to protect the president too much, more than the Constitution requires. It damages checks and balances. And obviously, we need to make clear that that is not the law. Is there a mechanism for challenging these sorts of decisions that seem to have been written in stone, whether or not they are? Well, if the president had been prosecuted while in office, then a court would have had to decide, was that right or not? OLC opinions are overturned by the courts all the time, and that's how you do it. You've got to put them in issue. I think the department should have prosecuted Mark Meadows. And that would have then put in question. Now, we don't know for sure what the decision making was, but I think it was there's OLC opinion saying that Meadows didn't have to show up in Congress, that individuals with his government position, they don't necessarily have to show up for a deposition. No, that's not right. So whatever the reason is that they didn't charge Meadows, I would like to see these OLC opinions, some of them turned around. But let's start by having transparency for everything at OLC. And then we'll take it from there. Continuing with the theme of transparency in repairing democracy, that was a chapter written by Ann Weissman. The Freedom of Information Act, that was a very important act, and it's been undermined by successive administrations, but particularly under the Trump administration, in which foot-dragging, I suppose, is the kindest way to characterize what was happening. Please talk to our listeners about that problem. The Freedom of Information Act was one of those post-Watergate reforms that we write about in overcoming Trumpery. We, as a nation, decided that excessive secrecy had given us the abuses of the Nixon administration, and we wanted the American people to have much more information. And so there were pre-existing ways to get transparency, but we modernized, expanded, and extended it. And basically, uh, what the Freedom of Information Act does is it allows you to make a request to any government agency for information, unless it's exempted. There are certain categories, national security information, personal information about uh, the health records of government employees, that type of thing. But unless information falls in an exemption, it needs to be provided by the government. And if you don't get it, you can sue. And the organization I helped co-found, CREW, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, is one of the leading litigants to try to get this kind of information from the government. There are some problems, however, that have developed with the Freedom of Information Act. And in our book, we talk about how to fix those. One, it takes a very long time for the government to respond to these requests. We need to do a much better job of both making clear that they have to be responded to quickly. It can take years to get information you want responded to quickly. They have to be properly funded, the Freedom of Information offices. Two, you shouldn't have to ask. Much more information should automatically be put on the web by every agency so that it's there for those who need it. Three, some of the rules we now have over four decades of experience with the Freedom of Information Act. Some of the rules are too restrictive. It's too hard to squeeze that information out. We need to liberalize the rules. In a, a democratic republic, which the United States is, 
the government is ultimately the property of the people. That includes, Joy, all of the information inside the government, unless there's a compelling reason otherwise. National security, personal information, law, certain law enforcement information. So I think that we ought to reform FOIA, as it's called, and we write about that in Overcoming Trumpery. It gets a whole chapter. And one of these nine exemptions is if the record reveals the agency's policy flaws, that's got to be taken out. <laughs> Cause, yeah, because that's absolutely what, it's ridiculous. That's the whole point. One of the Watergate laws was the Inspector General Act of 1978, and. I'm sure I'm not the only one who was shocked as inspector general after inspector general was just peremptorily fired by former President Trump if he didn't like what the inspector general was doing. So what are some of the reforms that might prevent that sort of thing from happening? We need to have a better balance of authorities. Now, here is where you get into constitutional limitations, Joy. We can do some rebalancing. Ultimately, the president has the power to retain or release IGs, but could provide more information about why you're doing it, can provide it faster. We should give more power to the IGs while they're in office, though, Joy. For example, more power to compel information, to investigate, more staff, more funding. So there's a lot we can do with the IGs because Trump showed that we need them very badly. They are the internal watchdogs of our government. And the Presidential Record Act of 1978, it would appear that former President Trump was violating that act right and left. I mean, he wasn't even discreet about it. Very soon into his administration, there were numerous reports of his just literally ripping up documents that were covered by this act, and aides would have to spend their time picking up the pieces, taping them together. And then there was also, after he left the White House, I think it was 50-plus boxes of documents that he removed and brought with him to Mar-a-Lago. Is there in the Presidential Records Act, are there penalties for that sort of thing? Yes, in the Presidential Records Act and in other statutory regimes, there are penalties, including criminal penalties. Joy, if you think about it, it's like stealing the Resolute Desk. If he intentionally took government property, particularly originals, with him to Mar-a-Lago, that is wrong. And the law has codified that. Indeed, if it was classified information, it might even be a criminal matter. So we don't know all the facts yet. We know it's being looked at. But if the ex-president broke the law, he should not get any special breaks. Ours is a country that no one is above the law. And if essentially he stole from the federal government, he should be held responsible for that. Documents are no exception. Okay, so you mentioned that there are potential criminal sanctions for violating this act. In some of the reforms that are put forth in your book, Overcoming Trumpery, 
you know that sometimes it might be better not to include criminal penalties, but just to restrict things to civil penalties. Would you explain the thinking behind that? In what regard? Well, I can't quite remember which part of the book it was, but someone, one of the writers was saying that because criminal sanctions might be more difficult to prove, it might be preferable to make only civil sanctions the potential in legislating reforms? Well, yes, there are places, for example, in the, Claire Finkelstein wrote about this in her chapter on the Foreign Agents Registration Act. So there are places where it makes more sense to have uh, parallel regimes. And indeed, theoretically, it applies across the board. The challenge of having criminal penalties, let's take the continue with the example of the foreign agents. The challenge is that often prosecutors will say, well, this doesn't feel like a criminal case, including because it has to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt if you're going to have a criminal prosecution. So having tough penalties, ironically, may actually result in less enforcement in Foreign Agents Registration Act, FARA cases, and in other areas. So you need to have a lesser... Well, final words, please, Ambassador Eisen, for our listeners. We uh, find ourselves in the midst of a moment of crisis for our democracy. And it's a crisis that is triggered by Donald Trump and what I call Trumpery. But there is hope. The 2020 election, in a nonpartisan way, was a great national referendum. Democracy or Trumpery? The country chose democracy. And through getting the truth out through the cable box, passing new laws by checking the legislative tally box, through prosecutions and getting convictions at the jury box and through the ballot box. 2022 and 2024, as also this choice, democracy or trumpery, the efforts that came together in 2020, that successful outcome can be achieved again. In some ways, the threat of trumpery is greater than ever before, but also overcoming trumpery as a strategy has more energy and experience. In our book, we explain what overcoming trumpery looks like. I hope our country will engage in what we write about overcoming trumpery. Joy, thank you for having me. You have just heard an interview with retired Ambassador Norman Eisen. His latest book, Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy, is published by the Brookings Institution Press. Unfortunately, our interview was cut short due to technical issues, but this allows us to share excerpts from the June 23, 2022 session of the House January 6th Committee featuring former Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, Deputy Attorney General Richard Donahue, and Stephen Engel. It is chillingly relevant to our discussion of overcoming trumpery. 
In fact, their testimony recounting their united refusal to enable efforts by Donald Trump and his minions to orchestrate a coup d'etat using the Department of Justice to add credence to his baseless assertions of fraud in the 2020 presidential election was riveting. The hearing came one day after the FBI executed a warrant to search former DOJ employee Jeffrey Clark's residence, and the hearing revealed that he was the lone member of the DOJ who was willing, even eager, to serve Donald Trump instead of following DOJ process or policy. Their testimony illustrates how radically norms and policies were violated. As uh, we discussed earlier, at the center of Mr. Clark's plan to undo President Trump's election loss uh, was a letter. Mr. Donahue, on December 28th, Mr. Clark emailed you and Mr. Rosen a draft letter that he wanted you to sign uh, and send to Georgia state officials. You testified that this could have, quote, grave constitutional consequences. Mr. Donahue, can you tell us what you meant by that? Well, I had to read both the email and the attached letter twice to make sure I really understood what he was proposing because it was so extreme to me. I had a hard time getting my head around it initially, and I sat down to draft a response because I thought it was very important to give a prompt response rejecting this out of hand. In my response, I explained a number of reasons this is not the department's role to suggest or dictate to state legislatures how they should select their electors, but more importantly... This was not based on fact. This was actually contrary to the facts as developed by department investigations over the last several weeks and months. And for the department to insert itself into the political process this way, I think would have had grave consequences for the country, may very well have spiraled us into a constitutional crisis. And I wanted to make sure that he understood the gravity of the situation because he didn't seem to really appreciate it. Select committee confirmed that a call was actually placed by Secretary Miller to the attache in Italy to investigate the claim that Italian satellites were switching votes from Trump to Biden. This is one of the best examples of the lengths to which President Trump would go to stay in power. Scouring the Internet to support his conspiracy theories, as he told Mr. Donahue in that December 27th call, quote, You guys may not be following the Internet the way I do. President Trump's efforts to this point had failed. Stonewalled by Mr. Rosen and Mr. Donahue, President Trump had only one option. He needed to make Clark acting attorney general. Mr. Rosen, during a January 2nd meeting with Mr. Clark, did you confront him again about his contact with the president? And if so, can you describe that? At this point, Mr. Clark had told us that the president had asked him to consider whether he would be willing to replace me, supposedly on a timetable by Monday, the 4th. I had told Mr. Clark I thought he was making a colossal error in judgment, but I also hoped to persuade him to be more rational and to understood what we had understood, that there's not a factual basis for the fraud assertions that are being made. So at this meeting, Mr. Donahue and I met with Mr. Clark. My hopes were disappointed in that Mr. Clark continued to express view that he thought there was fraud, even though he had not been a participant in the department's review of that, and that he was dissatisfied that we knew what we were doing. But he had acknowledged that he had had further discussion with the president, despite having 
you know, a week earlier said that if he, he A, he wouldn't do that, and if he did, he, if he got an invitation to do that, he would let Rich Donahue or me know. So it was a contentious meeting where we were chastising him that he was insubordinate, he was out of line, he had not honored his own representations of what he would do, and he raised again uh, that he thought that letter should go out, and we were not receptive to that. Can you tell you in that that the president had offered him the job of acting attorney general? That was uh, a day later. On the, on the second, he, he said that the president had asked him to let him know if he'd be willing to take it. On Sunday the 3rd, he told me that the timeline had moved up and that the president had offered him the job and that he was accepting it. What was your reaction to that? Well, you know, on the one hand, I wasn't going to accept being fired by my subordinate, so I wanted to talk to the, the president directly. With regard to the reason for that is I wanted to try to convince the president not to go down the wrong path that Mr. Clark seemed to be advocating. But I did not want for the Department of Justice to be put in a posture where it would be doing things that were not consistent with the truth, were not consistent with its own uh, appropriate role, or were not consistent with the Constitution. So I did four things as soon as Mr. Clark left my office on on that Sunday, the, the third. Number one, I called Mark Meadows and said I need to see the president right away. He was agreeable and set up a meeting for 6.15 that Sunday, so about two hours away. Two, I called Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, told him what was going on, and he said he would go into the White House to make sure he was at the meeting and he would be supporting the Justice Department's position, as he had been doing consistently. Three, Mr. Engel, I called at home and asked him if he would come in and go to the meeting, which he did. It proved to be quite helpful. And then number four, I asked Rich Donahue and Pat Hovakimian, who had uh, previously been my chief of staff, to get the department's senior leadership on a call and let them know what was going on, which they did. So I knew that the meeting was on course and that I would have a number of people supportive of the Department of Justice's approach and not supportive of of Mr. Clark's approach. Did Mr. Clark ask you to continue to stay at the department? Uh, at that Sunday meeting, he told me that he would be replacing me. He said that he had asked to see me alone because he thought it would be appropriate in light of what was happening to at least offer me that I could stay on as his deputy. I thought that was preposterous. I told him that was nonsensical and, and that there's no universe where I was going to do that, to stay on and support someone else doing things that were not consistent with what I thought should be done. So uh, I didn't accept that offer, if I can put it that way. (laughs) And during that meeting, did Mr. Clark ask you to sign the Georgia letter? That was on the the Saturday meeting, uh, January 2nd, that Mr. Donahue and I had with him. He again raised with both of us that that he wanted us to, uh, both, to sign that letter, actually. So in that meeting, did Mr. Clark say he would turn down the president's offer if you reversed your position and signed the letter? Yes. So you still refused to sign and send that letter, I take it? That, that's right. Uh, I, I think Mr. Donahue and I were both very consistent that there was no way we were going to sign that letter, and it didn't matter what Mr. Clark's 
proposition was in terms of his own activities, we were not going to sign that letter as long as uh, we were in charge of the Justice Department. So as part of the select committee's investigation, we found that, well, Mr. Rosen, Mr. Donahue, and Mr. Engel were preparing for their meeting at the White House. Jeff Clark and the president were in constant communication beginning at 7 a.m. White House call logs obtained by the committee show that by 4.19 p.m. on January 3rd, the White House had already begun referring to Mr. Clark as the acting attorney general. As far as the White House was concerned, Mr. Clark was already at the top of the Justice Department. Two hours later, DOJ leadership arrived at the White House. The select committee interviewed every person who was inside the room that was inside the room during this Sunday evening Oval Office meeting. Mr. Cipollone told the committee that he was, quote, unmistakably angry during the meeting and that he, along with Eric Hirschman and Mr. Donahue, quote, forcefully challenged Mr. Clark to produce evidence of his election fraud theories. Mr. Rosen, can you describe how that meeting started? The president turned to me and he said, well, one thing we know is you, Rosen, you aren't going to do anything. You don't even uh, agree with the claims of election fraud. And this other guy at least might do something. And then I said, well, Mr. President, you're right that I'm not going to allow the Justice Department to do anything to try to overturn the election. That's true. But the reason for that is because that's what's consistent with the facts and the law, and that's what's uh, required under the Constitution. So that's the right answer and a good thing for the country, and therefore I submit it's the right thing for you, Mr. President. And that kicked off uh, another two hours of discussion in which everyone in the room was in one way or another making different points, but supportive of my approach for the Justice Department and critical of Mr. Clark. The conversation at this point was really about whether the president should remove Jeff Rosen and replace him with Jeff Clark. And everyone in the room, I think, understood that that meant that letter would go out. That was the focus. Uh, It was about a a two-and-a-half-hour meeting after I entered and so there were discussions about the pros and cons of doing that. Early on, the president said, what do I have to lose? And it was actually a good opening because I said, Mr. President, you have a great deal to lose. And I began to explain to him what he had to lose and what the country had to lose and what the department had to lose. And this was not in anyone's best interest. That conversation went on for some time. Everyone essentially chimed in with their own thoughts, all of which were consistent about how damaging this would be to the country, to the department, to the administration, to him personally. At some point, the conversation turned to whether Jeff Clark was even qualified, competent to run the Justice Department, which in my mind, he clearly was not. I thought it was useful to point out to the president that Jeff Clark simply didn't have the the skills, the ability, and the experience to run the department. And so I said, Mr. President, you're talking about putting a man in that seat who has never tried a criminal case, who's never conducted a criminal investigation. He's telling you that he's going to take charge of the department, 115,000 employees, including the entire FBI, and turn the place on a dime and conduct nationwide criminal investigations that will produce results in a matter of days. It's impossible. It's absurd. It's not going to happen, and it's going to fail. He has never been in front of a trial jury, a grand jury. He's never even been to Chris Ray's office. 
I said at one point, if you walked into Chris Ray's office, one, would you know how to get there? And two, if you got there, would he even know who you are? Do you really think that the FBI is going to suddenly start following your orders? It's not going to happen. He's not competent. Did anybody in there support Mr. Clark? No one. Mr. Rosen, it was you he was going to replace. So what was your view about the president's plan to appoint Mr. Clark? The issue was the use of the Justice Department. And it's just so important that the Justice Department adhere to the facts and the law. That's what it's there to do. And that's what our constitutional role was. And so if the Justice Department gets out of the role that it's supposed to play, that's really bad for our country. And I don't know a simpler way to say that. And when you damage our fundamental institutions, it's not easy to repair them. Mr. Donahue, did you eventually tell the president that mass resignations would occur if he installed Mr. Clark and what the consequences would be? Yes. So this was in line with the president saying, what do I have to lose? Along those lines, he said, so suppose I do this. So suppose I replace him, Jeff Rosen, with him, Jeff Clark. What would you do? And I said, Mr. President, I resign immediately. I'm not working one minute for this guy. But I'm telling you what's going to happen. You're going to lose your entire department leadership. Every single AAG will walk out on your your entire department leadership will walk out within hours. And I don't know what happens after that. I don't know what the United States attorneys are going to do. Within 24, 48, 72 hours, you could have hundreds and hundreds of resignations of the leadership of your entire Justice Department because of your actions. What's that going to say about you? No one is going to read this letter. All anyone is going to think is that you went through two attorneys general in two weeks until you found the environmental guy to sign this thing. And so the story is not going to be that the Department of Justice has found massive corruption that would have changed the results of the election. It's going to be the disaster of Jeff Clark. I think at that point, Pat Cipollone said, yeah, this is a murder-suicide pact, this letter. Jeff Clark would be left leading a graveyard. That comment clearly had an impact on the president. The leadership will be gone. Jeff Clark will be left leading a graveyard. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs and find links to articles pertinent to them at our website, forthright.media. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.